1: Very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the um, Are a- you surprised the Nazis
2: were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah.
0: McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up.
1: Listen, I'm watching
2: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power. To keep this peaceful, you know. It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
1: Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andrew Fleming. And this week we're joined by Dr. April Anson, who is an assistant professor of public humanities at the San Diego State University and is also one of the members of the Anti-Creep Climate Initiative. Thanks for joining us, April.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. I guess
1: just to begin with, uh, the Anti-Creep Climate Initiative brought out a comic book earlier in the year. Could you tell us a little bit about Against the Eco-Fascist Creep?
3: Yes. Well, the project really started from my partner and I and a couple of friends of ours You know, friends and colleagues of ours lamenting the way that the two Marvel movies at that time, they were the two newest Marvel movies, both Infinity War and Oh My Gosh, and Endgame almost almost forgot the title there. It's been now a couple of years, but the films had positioned Thanos as the as the arch villain. And he was spouting some rather basic kind of tenets of ecofascism and none of the characters in the film nor the plot of the film more broadly in either of the films took him on at all and and this is in kind of blatant disregard for the decades and decades and decades of research disproving Thanos's arguments. So we, you know, at first were just really frustrated with that and and the ways that it was kind of mainstreaming eco-fascist rhetoric. And then, you know, COVID happened and the beginning of COVID, the first few months were really marked by this uh, what was called the COVID nature genre where, you know, memes were were circulating in our social media spaces that claimed that nature was healing, you know, that COVID was the um, humans or the virus? COVID was the cure, right? And so these two kind of problem sets collided, and we felt like we really needed to develop some very, you know, quick shareable resources that in some ways formally mimicked or at least maybe not mimicked is is the wrong word but at least tried to to capitalize on some of the media spaces being utilized by the far right namely like meme culture and shitposting and all of these things we thought well what happens if we if we develop a resource that is kind of as shareable as some of these memes, you know, but more nuanced. And and so we, you know, as typical, I think to maybe many academics, certainly myself, thought well, this, you know, this will be a, a couple of month project, month long project. And and the, the more we got into it, the longer it took and the more complicated the, you know, the job we had set out for ourselves uh, revealed itself to be. And and I, and I mean that it kind of I, I say that in two for two reasons. One is a, a kind of compassion for that. I call it my "I Dream of Genie" syndrome, where I, if I imagine I can do something, I think it's it's only going to take as long as it took to imagine it to actually accomplish it, um, and and also because it was such a rich learning experience that ecofascism, like fascism, is so slippery it's so syncretic and dynamic and responsive to culture and that that is a real challenge um, intellectually to get a kind of handle on it. And we all realized um, separately and together that we needed each other and that it was only possible in this kind of collective space that we had formed and so we you know we went through and and drafted the comic and drafted the the six mini essays that take what we identified as the kind of six most common eco-fascist arguments or myths rather and why they're wrong with uh, with resources and then discussion and teaching materials at the end and some tactics and strategies for to guide m- m- more material our material politics like activism and and so we had this great product but we or we had the 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 contents of the great product. And then we were lucky enough to be hooked up with a graphic designer from SDSU. She was a master's student. Her name is Melanie Keenan and she transformed what was a really solid intellectual project into the into the like beautiful comic aesthetic that Really, really was the kind of final final touch for the for the, the the comic zine, whatever you want to classify it as. So it was a much longer um, process than we we initially thought, um, but much much richer and I think more um, efficacious and powerful because of it.
1: How has the project been received?
3: Really well. Oh my gosh. Yes, I'm actually. You know, I know that immediately in in my academic circles it was picked up and in, in different classrooms being used. But I have had in the last month. The kind of crazy serendipitous experience where I'm talking to someone. It was, I was just recently talking to a grad student that I'm mentoring and they mentioned that they saw my name because they, a, like a social organization, a political organization that they're a part of was sharing the zine out. So it's, it's popping up in, in these kind of unanticipated places. But I also know it's being widely implemented into classrooms, both explicitly environmental classrooms and also, you know, classrooms like um, comic studies and, and the like.
1: The the title of the book is a bit of a play on the title of a book by a former guest of ours, Alexander Reed Ross, who wrote Against the Fascist Creep. How does the eco-fascist creep sort of manifest itself?
3: Yes, thank you for that shout out to to Alex Reed Ross. What a what a just a, a inspiring and kind of an OG thinker <laughs> for, for us in the anti creep Climate Collective um, and just a really generous, generous thinker as well. And that, you know, his point in that book or one of his many points, but kind of maybe his his broadest point that I take is this this creep, you know, we think about fascism as a as a far right phenomenon. And we in the collective really took heed of his point that, you know, fascism creeps from the left all the time. And this, this uh, Marvel Universe's treatment of Thanos felt to us very much a kind of exemplary of what Reed Ross was talking about in his book, that it's, you know, it's not just, and, you know, that that fascism and ecofascism um, as well are not just far right phenomena, and the longer and more resistant we are um, to realizing that, the the stronger that kind of pipeline from the left gets. And this is, you know, this is, and I say this as someone I was I was raised in the um, Pacific Northwest in Kalapuya territory, where the you know growing up, my kind of imagination was really formed by this direct action environmentalism versus the logging industry and this this notion that that ecofascism is just a far right phenomenon really my personal experience growing up in the northwest really disabused me of that notion when i see you know, my, my maybe more, more hippie friends or more even my direct action and environmental activist friends sharing memes that talk about humans like a virus or all we need is collapse, right? This is, to me, this is a, it's a real error in contemporary understandings of ecofascism and possibly fascism also as understanding it as a state phenomenon and understanding it as a, as a purely far-right phenomenon. And Alex Reed Ross's work, I think, goes a long, long way to proving the kind of futility of that binary. April,
2: when the fascist creep is referred to, I guess, I also think about the way in which fascism creeps or sneaks into power via culture. Can you talk a little bit about how, I guess, the extent to which eco-fascism is a disguised form of fascism? What precisely do you think is the relationship between fascism and ecological thought?
3: That is, thank you. That's a, such a such a good question, and it's a question that I admittedly have not, you know, landed satisfactorily in a stable position. I do think that some of uh, indigenous thinkers, indigenous anti fascist thinkers that I that I listen to, make really compelling arguments that you know um, colonialism is the root of fascism. And to my mind, you know, in, 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 the, in the angle of that, that I feel most qualified to speak of is its ecological kind of imagination, both colonialism's ecological imagination and fascism's ecological imagination, which I see is, is near to um, indistinguishable. When we think about the recognizable tenets of fascism in Nazi Germany, like blood and soil, that's obviously a kind of land logic that... When you read the doctrine of discovery from, you know, the 14th century on that says if someone, if a, if a colonist has discovered a land that they have use over it, right, that that a kind of property logic is what binds a particular population to a particular soil, That is, that is, that's the, you know a founding logic of fascism that was seeded long before what we recognize as the rise of fascism in colonial land logics. So all that to say is that I think I'm really compelled and I think persuaded by um, a couple of my other um, anti-creep climate initiative members. And I'm just going to give them all a shout out here because I want to make sure that that we know who they are, which are um, Alex Minriski, Shane Hall, Bruno Serafin and Cassie Galantine and all of us together. And speaking of it, particularly Alex Manrisky says that he's largely now staying away from the term ecofascism and instead talking about eco-fascist, that it's actually, uh, you know, not a stable ideology or logic, but actually something that gets um, deployed in a, a particular moment. And that's why that emphasis on culture is so important because we, we, I think, can often be, gosh, lulled into thinking that culture isn't as large of a a political mover as an actor as it is. But, you know, if anything, if the bumper stickers are in in my maybe supposedly liberal neighborhood here in Kumeyaay territory in what's currently called San Diego or any indication, just my, you know, my neighbor around the corner has a a bumper sticker that says, uh, make America green again. And their neighbor has a sticker that says Thanos was right. So this tells me like the occurrence, the, the uh, emergence of these solidarities, really like rhetorical solidarities in a very liberal neighborhood, in a very liberal city with some very explicitly genocidal figures like Thanos. That tells me that we have to attend to this relationship between ecofascism, fascism fascism, and colonialism, recognizing this as a kind of spectrum rather than, you know, historical epics, you know, as distinguishable t- between like the colonial era and the imperial era, but attending to the through lines that allow that kind of slip, right, or sneak or creep across culture.
1: April, could you speak to the myths that you explore in the zane?
3: We sort of compiled all of the, the ways that we were seeing ecofascism pop up and came up with these six, what we call everyday ecofascist myths. The first is maybe the most recognizable, which is Overpopulation is an environmental crisis. This is one that I see all the time in my supposedly leftist or progressive circles, but followed closely by the claim, which is a second um, myth, humans are naturally tragically selfish. And then a close third, humans are a virus. Writing those as separate myths was quite hard because they are um, related to one another. But there's also, I think, maybe more distinct uh, myths like city people are the problem, that strong borders protect our scarce resources, and lastly, environmental and social collapse are desirable. So those are the kind of myths, the six myths that we identify, but not to suggest that those are um, you know exhaustive by any means, but the ones that we see most um, maybe explicitly marking this creep from left to right.
1: When we see these myths uh, being deployed, how, how can we best counter them?
3: Yes, countering them, I think, is for me most important to um, proceed with compassion, not to um, Exonerate or to write off people as well meaning and then not engage with the more problematic kind of moments in what someone is saying, but to proceed with like the acknowledgement that it's precisely because these eco fascist myths creep across our social and political spheres so, so ubiquitously that they often seem to make a kind of common sense. And what we discovered in um, what the group discovered in thinking through these myths together is that yes, there are tomes and tomes and tomes of research disproving every single one of these myths. You know, we can take a figure like Garrett Hardin, for example, whose tragedy of the commons is still taught in my experience in environmental studies Quite often, as canon, without any mention of the fact that he's, you know, he was an avowed white supremacist and white nationalist. But we can we we can kind of pinpoint the ways that someone like Garrett Hardin continues to be taught, not because his ideas have any merit whatsoever, but because it's it has become a kind of common sense, and so engaging our common sense I think is one of the most um, engaging our compassion first and then secondly engaging our common sense is one of the um, the most critical means to disabusing ourselves of these myths and that it doesn't take reading the tomes of literature and research disproving these myths it actually just takes a kind of critical common sense what I mean by that is is taking a kind of moment of critical self-reflection to what seems to be common sense and asking, um, interrogating that a little bit. So, you know, someone like Garrett Hardin or Paul Urich's claims, you know, that, that humans are naturally tragically selfish. When we read their writing, we see this like self-fulfilling fantasy that they begin with that, that, that assumption in order to prove that assumption. And all we have to do is think of one counterexample to prove that that generalization to be incorrect, right? Or if if nothing else, far more complicated than humans are naturally selfish. We know from disaster scenarios, for for instance, that um, you know, it's humans that are help each other that have the better um, the better chance of survival. <laughs> so um, even if we put ethics aside, you know, we can um, if we engage in a kind of critical common sense, just inviting us to think a little bit. When we, when we encounter claims like overpopulation is the problem, right? It's just take a beat, ask what it means, who it's affecting, who is benefiting, and who is helping, right? And that, that helps us distinguish the ways that power is operating in each of those myths. So who's profiting, who's being exploited, and who's working to, to help address that crisis is typically how I approach it with my students and with my family and with myself, you know, because these things show up in my own, in my own thought patterns as well.
1: Um, April, I was wondering if you could talk to ableism within the climate movement and how it sort of relates to eco-fascist thought.
3: Oh, gosh, I love that question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, the... There's a couple of, um, one in particular a person that I want to give a shout out to. And I um, I, I'm, I am not a disability studies scholar, but I have learned a lot from uh, Sarah Jaquette Ray's work called The Ecological Other, which really takes up the ways that ableism and able-bodiedness is assumed in environmentalist circles and is sometimes a prerequisite for proving your commitment to environmentalism and conservation she, her work has been, again, her name is Sarah Chiquette Ray. She's a professor of environmental studies at Humboldt Polytechnic. Now it used to be Humboldt State, but now it's Humboldt Polytechnic. And, you know, what I learned from her and from her listening to disability scholars is that this ableism, of course, was, you know, at the very kind of embedded in the very beginnings of what we think of as American conservation with Teddy Roosevelt and um, John Muir and this, this notion of the kind of uh, dominant masculinity atop a mountain peak. But it's also insidiously repeated in advertisements from groups like, or from companies like REI, right? Where we have this ideal figure that is white, able-bodied, typically male, if not male, then um, presenting in some sort of other masculine way. And it that just is a kind of another form of exclusionary logic that you know, that, that isn't perhaps as identifiable as the whiteness that pervades a lot of environmentalist and conservationist circles um, and imagery because it's Assumed, like I think ableism is assumed as a pre again like a prerequisite to accessing some of this outdoor spaces and and leisure activities. So all that to say is I'm not an expert in that, but I think the question of ableism is so, so, so vital. And one of the ways it shows up in terms of the um, everyday myths of ecofascism is this idea that humans are a virus. And one of uh one of our one of the anti creep climate um initiative members. Uh, our collective members named Cassie Galantine reminded us, right. That calling something a cancer is not only a kind of longstanding racist and xenophobic metaphor of like the viral and the virus and the disease, but it also assumes that viruses and virality and um, things that affect our bodies are always negative. And that's just not true either. Right? So when we think about ableism and alter abled people, that that that's not always a visible. That's not always visible, right? Our our relationship to disability is not always visible, um, and that you know that the assumptions that come along with visibility really overdetermine the kind of representational politics of environmentalism, especially in the United States.
2: I'm wondering if you can address the question of crisis in relation to ecofascist thought and practice, because. There's, a, I guess, an identification of certain interpretations of ecofascism with certain kinds of extremism or extreme responses, the formulation of extreme responses to extreme circumstances, and a certain kind of parallel is sometimes drawn between the forms of extremism that ecofascists advocate and those of others. So I guess I'm, I'm asking a few questions. One is ecofascism as a, as a, a crisis response to a whole series of environmental crises mm-hmm. and the ways in which it's understood as a, a species of extremism, which is, has its you know, equivalent in um, other forms of radical environmentalism.
3: The first thing I'll say about that is I, I think you're exactly right, um, that we, you know, especially in um, since 2019 with the mass murders in um, Christchurch, New Zealand, and then later in El Paso, Texas, and then the mass murder earlier this year in Buffalo, New York, all perpetrated by self-identified eco-fascists, who were all immediately characterized as suffering from mental health crises. So, a couple things about that is, you know, I think that the the, the impulse to recognize these folks as responding to crises is. Right, <laughs> um, I think you know as as uh, environmental journalist Mary Hegler tells us, you know, ecofascism is climate action. Right, it is a response to climate crisis. That it's that it's not a efficacious one. That it is not uh, opening up to solutions is also true. But it's certainly that these people feel like they are um, taking taking charge and responding to climate crisis. So that I feel like, first of all, the compassionate response is recognizing that they are responding to crisis, not, um, you know, chalking it up to a kind of mental health crisis um, that is divorced from the systemic and material causes of climate change, right? So it's one thing to say like this person is expen- experiencing a mental health breakdown, and then you know that's it, like that's the end of the that's the end of the diagnosis. But they're expen- experiencing a mental health breakdown because of the context in which they're living, and then they're given this choice of cuck or hero, <laughs> and their definition of hero is mass murder, like. That there's all um, there's like a rich kind of cultural analysis available that gets that gets short circuited when our media escapes uh, write them off as as um, uh, mental health crises alone, separate from their context. So I think proceeding first with compassion, recognizing that they are, um, you know, that that people who are that flirt with ecofascism in whatever degree uh, are sensing real problems right and and searching and reaching for solutions and i think we often when we reach for solutions we reach for stories that are familiar or that quote unquote seem right and that they seem right because they're repeated so often right and it's those things that are repeated so often that i am most concerned about because i think they you know those narratives that circulate over and over and over again are really signs or f- red flags of um, narratives that are Anxious that they need to be asserted over and over again because they they need um, they don't stand on their own right and so again to that kind of critical self reflection or that critical um, that critical reflection maybe it's not self reflection but reflection on the ideas that these mass murders were um, circulating that they put up in texts before they um, perpetrated the mass murders I don't. Uh, I really um, don't, I no longer refer to these texts as manifestos because one, they're not coherent like a manifesto is, but they're also not even um, really textual. Like they're mostly copy and pasting, shitposting and memes and random, you know, random citations from that look scholarly, but when you track them down, they're actually by, um, you know, kind of propaganda machines. So they're not, they're not coherent documents, but so I don't think that we should call them manifestos, but I do think we should take them seriously. And when we look at the, um, at least these, you know, these last three, the Buffalo, El Paso and Christchurch, when you look at the ways that they're, they're citing themselves and they're citing each other, they're building. And this is, I take this from social science researchers on the far right who say there's a kind of intentional self-referentiality that's happening in these spaces where their vision of the future becomes a kind of self-fulfilling present to justify their actions. And, and by that, I mean, for instance, the El Paso murderer's first paragraph says you know, that he was targeting the so-called Hispanic invasion of the United States and that the genocide of Native Americans, it quote, only reinforced his point um, that he needed to perpetrate genocide. And so even in that opening paragraph, we see this like self-reinforcing logic where he's imagining this future of climate chaos and this future so-called hispanic invasion that's threatening his present right his like white ownership over you know his title to the to the land and so that kind of future project- projection feels to me like a form of speculative fiction where they're taking a kind of historical image of white nature, projecting it as an, into the threat of climate chaos, and then using that future projection to justify their violence in the present. And that kind of self-fulfilling hero narrative, I feel like cuts across the far right and left. Like I see it in leftist spaces. There's, there's pieces of those those um, texts by the El Paso murderer and the Buffalo murderer that feel, and Christchurch, that feel very near to something like deep ecology. So all that to say, I think that the using the term eco-fascist instead of eco-fascism is very useful because it helps me recognize even in myself when I'm kind of starting to dip into that That like very greasy pipeline from left to right that says collapse is good. You know these there's scarce resources and we have to protect our resources from these people who are coming in who don't deserve them. Um, This kind of forward projection rather than backward analysis of how we got here. Like we know from let's say the 2022 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a, a a a vast group of international scientists, climate scientists, who get together and agree on, you know, some kind of baseline evidence and um, conclusions about climate change. And this year, they said, irrefutably, colonialism is the primary cause and driver of climate change.
1: Sometimes strikes me that one of the key firewalls keeping the, you know, the, not just the far right, but, uh, you know, the conservative movements generally from a full-throated embrace of eco-fascism is uh, climate denialism.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's probably not a great situation.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's not. <laughs> I think it's not a good situation primarily because I do think that the the, the driver of a climate denialism on the right could, Is a kind of, and I'm taking this from, um, I'm taking this point from Jedediah Purdy. Uh, He's an environmental historian at Duke. And he says, you know, this, this kind of orientation that, that typifies climate denialism is this threat that the tides are going to wash away this kind of narrow sovereignty, right? So that they hold on. To these climate denialists, hold on to this very narrow sovereignty in the face of all this social, um, demographic, political change, and so that, to me, that kind of defensive, fear-based narrow sovereignty, as Purdy calls it, I don't think would experience have any any friction whatsoever, as it transitions into a kind of climate fascism, like it's still that's still going to be driven by this fear that the the, the tides of certain populations or certain um, political dispositions are going to wash away some, you know, some imagined community of, of traditional white nature lovers, for instance. So it, I do think it's, it's um, really, really terrifying to my mind that climate denialism isn't grounded in anything other than a kind of sociopolitical fear because that will that can that fear can just be transposed into a climate fascism without any any modifications whatsoever
1: uh, april you recently wrote a paper called master metaphor environmental apocalypse and the settler states of emergency in which you compare the acquittal of the uh, bundy family and their uh, armed takeover of the malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, which we've covered extensively on the show, uh, and compared it with the arrest of protesters at Standing Rock in North Dakota at the pipeline. What did you find when you looked at those two incidents?
3: Yeah, you know, I um, I was finishing my PhD at the time of the um, Malheur takeover, the armed takeover, and watching as um, it felt like to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a scholar of 19th century American literature. And it felt like they were just on a, on a stage, you know, a kind of, kind of LARPing or something straight from frontier, like a frontier Western or something. Um, And so that, that as a literary scholar, it really interested me to watch the ways that these tropes um, that we think so signify 19th century American frontierism and um, expansionism were just being embodied so clearly and so almost comically, <laughs> by the the takeover at Malheur, at the same time as these water protectors were, you know, not just holding it down in terms of trying to protect the river and the 18 million people downriver from the Dakota Access Pipeline, but also were firmly operating within 19th century treaty rights with the, the 1858 Fort Laramie Treaty. So it felt like a real stark contrast. Not it felt like it was a very stark contrast with the, the sort of enactment of fiction in the Malheur takeover and the clear feelings of immunity and entitlement that that these people must have felt, the Malheur takeover must have felt because they were you know, they were parading with guns in front of cops who could have shot them while they, they you know, played out this fiction in contrast to the the very, like, real material and legal sovereignties that were being defended at Standing Rock and met with riot police and water cannons. And so it felt like, to me, such a clear example of the ways that you know, these, these 19th century environmental imaginaries of, of settler, the settler state and settler colonialism extend all the way to our present moment and provide a kind of non-fictional protection. Whereas the, the actual like government to government relations of native, native communities like the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota and the Fort Laramie treaty, you know, are are being treated like a fiction today when they're actually like binding legal agreements, right? That of course, the US government has never fulfilled, but it felt really stark. And then, and more, or, and, and as a part of that contrast, um, I was really interested in the ways that, that claims of apocalypse and apocalyptic rhetoric were circulating both at Malheur and at Standing Rock. And, Specifically, that many of the Malheur um, occupiers, like the Bundys, and oh gosh, I'm I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Oh yes, Lavoy Finnicum. Gosh, I can't believe it's been a while how since
1: can you get Lavoy <laughs> yeah,
3: I know how can I forget a name like Lavoy Finnicum? But you know the the Bundys are Mormon, and they're. Father Cliven Bundy um, had a close relationship to uh, Keith Nay, who's responsible for the Nay book, which is a kind of fringe Mormon belief that prophesies that um, you know Mormons basically will ride in like the white on the white horse of the apocalypse and save the U.S. government. So the Bundys have have that kind of apocalyptic Mormonism narrative that they're they're uh, at least one could assume that they're um, you know, feeling like that, they're acting that out. They're not treating their Mormon beliefs as just myth. And similarly, Lavoy Finnicum wrote a kind of apocalyptic um, novel. So there's all this apocalypticism circulating at Mal here that felt very much like a kind of an end of the world event obsession, in contrast to the prophecies at that I was, you know, privileged enough to, um, to learn from at Standing Rock that talked about the, the black state, this prophecy of the black snake, um, rising up and, and, and threatening kind of the health and wellness of the, you know, the traditional and ongoing caretakers of that land, which just felt like a very clear analogy to an oil pipeline. There was, so what I'm saying is that it felt like this real distinct difference between a kind of fantasy fiction circulating at Malheur where there wasn't actually any material evidence and then versus this apocalypticism uh, at Standing Rock that was a clear, A clear kind of had clear evidence on the ground and also provided a kind of framework for action for, you know, for protest, for resistance and also survival beyond um, the inevitable failure of that pipeline. And of course, it, it, you know, it has it was built and has um, has failed many, many, many times because all pipelines leak. So that contrast, you know, was a very common one in the media, the Bundys versus Standing Rock, um, not least of which because many of the occupiers of the Malheur Refuge were acquitted on the same day that 141 water protectors were arrested at Standing Rock. So there was a, a very um, temporal contrast. But also the um, images coming out were so different and so stark, and the treatment, you know, these armed. People who were professing their readiness for violence at Malheur, who were met with very passive and you know negotiation tactics, versus the um, water protectors at Standing Rock, unarmed, prayerful, met with water um, water cannons in below in sub zero temperatures and riot gear clad police and private military. It you know it's it's not a surprising. Um, contrast, given the history of the United States, as scholars like Kirby Brown have told us, but it was still shocking to see how how stark the difference was and how blatant the kind of the racial politics, you know, over-determining the police response to both, for sure.
2: April, in terms of the ideological resources that fascists are able to draw from, from within ecological thought, you've made reference to deep ecology. Mm. I was wondering if you could speak a little more about the ways in which that particular approach to understanding the environment and relations between humans and the non-human world, how that can perhaps lend itself to fascist interpretations. And if there are other resources that you think fascists rely upon or typically draw upon from within environmental thought that you haven't uh, already addressed, such as the Mm -hmm. Mythology about overpopulation and so on maybe something to do with nature worship or um place of the sacred within environmental
3: mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. yes it's i mean it's such a it's such a vital question and and a real admittedly it's a it's um a question that is kind of like an origin story a little bit of an origin story for my own work in that growing up in the the pacific northwest um my environmentalism was was really impacted by Earth First and their direct action campaigns in the 80s and 90s. And this, um, you know, largely this involved with what was called the spotted owl debate at that time, which was kind of, it was framed as this irreconcilable difference over how to use public lands. The, the conservationists argued for the spotted owl's placement on the endangered species list. While the um, loggers and the commercial logging industry argued against this projected loss of jobs, and so I, you know, when I was a very young person, I was really, um, I was deeply committed to environmental concerns and thought that earth firsters were awesome and their their tree sits were inspiring, their tree spikes felt necessary to my, my young, um, environmental, my young version of environmental politics at that time. And, you know, I've, I've since come to learn how narrow that, that binary, um, really is and how it, it constricted my imagination to this idea that like, either, you know, we're, we're all one species, we're all in it together, or, I have to take what's mine before they take what's theirs. And that's, a, that's obviously a very crude kind of summation. But all that to say is that, you know, I was really drawn to deep ecology as a young person. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the Gaia hypothesis. Um, I was very wooed by Lovelock. I loved Edward Abbey. And it has been a kind of lamentably long journey for me to develop the critical awareness of why these these positions, first of all, why they seem right, why they, they're kind of sexy in some ways, right? And develop a sort of compassion for that, for myself and for other folks who are attracted to their um, ideas that that kind of to your question, right, what is this, um, what's the kind of fascist interpretation lurking in these movements? To my mind, it's, there is a sense of belonging, like deep, meaningful belonging that I think Deep Ecology, Gaia, even, even Ed Abbey's monkey wrenching, they all offer a really on the face of it, a really rich kind of belonging, whether it's biocentric belonging, or, um, you know, a sort of metaphysical belonging, or even just a, you know, a kind of uh, monkey wrenching belonging, right, belonging to a material movement. But, But in total, you know, they are flattening the power relations that that have give, have the power relations that have gave, given rise to the need for something like deep ecology or, or the Gaia hypothesis, right? So, and this is the same, you know, this is kind of the same cart before the horse logic where we think about rather than, it, rather than addressing the lack of a belonging and what causes that lack of belonging, that deep, deep need that someone like uh, myself, you know, college age April had had such a deep need and then found that need at least temporarily met by people like Lovelock and deep ecologists and earth firsters. So I think this is a, this is a little bit of a tangential answer, I apologize, but all that to say is I think that they're answering a need, but they're answering it with this kind of this common sense that erases the power relations that cause that need to begin with. And that is they're offering these totalizing narratives that again, it whitewashes power relations. And that just is a, that's just a breeding ground for fascist sympathies. So when we think about, I know that some, there've been some um, people, particularly my, uh, a scholar named Michael Zimmerman, who's argued that ecofascism couldn't really happen in the United States at any um, real scale because it lacks that mystical element that we associate with the Volk and Nazi Germany. And the green Nazis, but I, I actually think that's a a real. That's just I think it's just wrong. You know the the American environmental movement is shot through with mysticism. Even our beloved origin of American environmentalism, Ralph Waldo Emerson, was a Unitarian minister, and also what Nell Irvin Painter calls the philosopher king of white racial theory. So all that to say is that these these figures and movements, I think we can we can meet in the same way as we were talking about these these mass shooters, we can recognize the real need and meet that need with compassion without exonerating their, their political trajectory, right? We can hold James Lovelock accountable for taking money from Shell Exxon to write the Gaia hypothesis. Like that was a funded intellectual exercise by the fossil fuel industry. Um, We can talk about Abby, Edward Abbey's beautiful sentences and also talk about his misogyny, his xenophobia, similar to Paul Urich. like, And that actually makes our movements more robust. Instead of saying that we have to you know, throw out whole cloth, but actually critically engage and say, okay, they're, they were meeting, um, they thought that they were responding to a real need and meeting that need. The, the need was real, is real. Let's, you know, let's learn from their flawed example and do better. That kind of calling in and celebration of not, maybe not celebration, but um, recognizing failures and mistakes as opportunities to grow and be better in our movements. That is, I think, one of the most robust defense mechanisms against that fascist creep that we have. Is a kind of co learning, right? To each one, teach one.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us, April. If people want to find more of your work, you're on Twitter while it still stands at April Anson. And people can also find your website, April Anson.com, where there are easy links to Against the Ecofascist Creep. Thanks for coming on.
3: Thank you so much. I apologize if I was, uh, I was pontificating, but I, I really appreciate this time with y'all and thank you so much for your work.
1: Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for, but we'll be back next week. Global Indifada is up next. See you later. See you then.
0: Oh, can you take care of her? Oh, maybe you can spare her. Several moments of your consideration. Leading up to the final destination. Oh, the earth is calling out. I want to learn. Wildlife Victoria is a non profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. is shining, or at least it's attempting to. So get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jam Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamshed Wines is a 3CR supporter. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country join us at acme on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019 tickets and passes on sale now at fr.org.au the environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter.